to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we talk about all things relating to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Dermot. And I'm Kelly, and this is episode 38, Pico della Mirandola-like. Dermot, it's a magical day. Mm, indeed. Do you remember what movie that is a reference to? No. The uh, Neil Breen opus, oh, Fateful Findings, God, where the kid in the first scene writes that in a notebook. Kelly has an expert knowledge of awful movies <laughs> and has introduced me to many of them. Mm -hmm. You pursue them at your peril. Except for Fateful Findings, which is really good. Mm, yes. The work of a madman. <laughs> this is not a Blooms and Breenicles, though. No. This is Blooms and Barnacles, where we talk about all things related to Ulysses. And we have a barnstormer of an episode today. Normally at the top here, we take care of some business. Uh, one manner of business I like to take care of is plugging a new article on our blog. Uh, I haven't quite finished the new one. So instead, I want Dermot to talk about some of the art he did for this podcast episode because we thought the best use of an audio medium is to describe visual images. <laughs> but if you want to see what we're talking about, you can visit our site at bloomsandbarnacles.com and see Dermot's amazing artwork. So he's going to tell us a little bit about the banner image he created for it. The uh, Alexandrian Library on yeah, fire. Yeah. yeah. There's not many people who actually have just a cartoon lined around of the uh, Library of Alexandria burning to the ground, but I did. So that was a quick one. And uh, the second one is a, a much more colorful picture of Pico, the Renaissance Magus. And he is performing his as above, so below pose, pointing at a yes. star in the sky and a little yellow flower on the ground. Yep. And you can see both of those uh, in the episode notes for this episode. A few little bits here. If you like our podcast, please recommend us to a friend or toss us a couple of bucks through the donate button on our webpage. It's in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, a uh, shout out to the professor who apparently recommended our Facebook group to their class. If you join our Facebook group, which you should, you can find us at Blooms and Barnacles Podcast on Facebook. Just put that in the old search bar. But you have to answer some questions in order to join the elite squadron of the Blooms and Barnacle Podcast Facebook group. One of the questions is, how did you hear about us? And someone said that their professor recommended the group. So if you're that professor, thanks, buddy. Hooray. We'd love to hear from you. Yep. So we have so much to talk about. Um, our goal is that this, well, my goal, I can't speak for Dermot, but my goal is that this will not be a three-hour-long podcast. <laughs> um, I guess uh, this isn't really a content warning, but we're going to talk about a lot of weird stuff this week. Esotericism is one of our directive themes in the episode of Proteus. So keep an open mind. If you're a, a bit of a materialist or an atheist, this might sound really like we're getting way out ahead of our skis this week, but just have fun with it. That's my recommendation. Uh, so this week's text you will find on page 40 of Ulysses in Proteus. Um, and the page number comes from my copy, which is the 1990 Vintage International Edition. Dermot is going to take us right away and read this chapter. No, nope, you're not going to read the chapter. You're going to read a paragraph. Psych! Thanks for that. <laughs> okay. Go for it. Reading two pages apiece of seven books every night, eh? I was young. You bowed to yourself on the mirror, stepping forward to applause earnestly, striking face. 
Hooray for the goddamned idiot. Hooray! No one saw. Tell no one. Books you were going to write with letters for titles. Have you read his F? Oh yes, but I prefer Q. Yes, but W is wonderful. Oh yes, W. Remember your epiphanies written on green oval leaves. Deeply deep. Copies to be sent if you die to all the great libraries of the world, including Alexandria. Someone was to read them there after a few thousand years. A Mahaman Vantara, Mahaman Vantara, Mahaman Vantara. I'll take that again. Someone was to read them there after a few thousand years. A Mahaman Vantara. Okay, let's just keep going. A Mahaman. Just, just keep going. Oh God, Pico della Miranda, like. Aye, very like a whale. When one reads these strange pages of one long gone, one feels that one is at one with one who wants. Any thoughts, Dermot? And thank you. Well, I've watched Peter Brook's Mahabharata and I can't pronounce Mahama Vantarara to save my life. I, the one thing, I think he's making fun of his younger self for having mm-hmm. ambitions beyond his ability at that age. And I think Pico, obviously I, I'm familiar with Pico, he's the Renaissance magician. Um, very obscure and a really interesting name to throw out. I think you're the only one that would use the word obviously when picking out that particular <laughs> reference, so congratulations. Well, he's quite clear. He hasn't encoded it. Yeah. You know, he's Pico, but, he names him Pico But you, you know why that's unusual, though. Mm, yeah, yeah. Continue. So, uh, so anyway, do you want to talk about Pico? Eventually. Okay, so I'll read the next bit. Um, well, let's, uh, just a few words. So the very beginning of this, I don't feel that we need to explicate too much. The part where he's reading two pages a piece of seven books, he's applauding himself, in the, or he's bowing to himself in the mirror, he's thinking of this these sort of highly conceptual books and mm-hmm. his fawning... Um, fan base that will love them so I, I would say this is just this this kind of cringing at your youthful mm-hmm. grandiosity is is probably kind of awkwardly and painfully familiar to anyone who had youthful dreams of being an artist mm-hmm. because you look back and you think oh my god and this is somebody who has succeeded even by now he knows he's a successful mm-hmm. artist but he looks well back James his... Joyce but Stephen Dedalus is a different mm-hmm. person but he's, James Joyce again he's looking back at this mm-hmm. avatar of yes. himself and going oh god what a yeah. cringeworthy absolutely piece. yeah and uh, even Stephen who's 22 here he, he knows he was being foolish and later on in the chapter you might remember where he remembers or he imagines the uh, sort of virginal young woman looking in the window of Hodges Figgis at uh, maybe hopefully looking for his letter books that's mm-hmm. kind of a callback to this so yeah. I mean there's not much more to say about this this is just Stevens you know roiling and cringing here he's thinking about himself this comes on the heels of him remembering weeping on top of the the tram to Hoth because he is thinking of naked women and you know all that kind of stuff so mm-hmm. he's worked himself into a lather the next bit here you want to read that again sure. remember your epiphanies written on green oval leaves deeply deep copies to be sent if you died to all the great libraries of the world including Alexandria so just a remark on Alexandria the library of Alexandria is the uh, classical library burned uh, four times, uh, so once was unfortunate and four times was careless. 
and uh, you can blame the burning on Caesar or uh, the early Christians or whoever you like, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's, yeah, remembered as one of the, maybe the greatest library of antiquity. Mm, there were several. Okay. So, yeah, people so, tend to obsess on it. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Library of Alexandria, it's all right. Burning was overrated. All right, man. Hot take. Mm -hmm. I'll uh, pun intended. I've got the quotes. I'll back it up. So there's a little bit of Joyce history here. Uh, so in 1902, young James Joyce left Dublin to go study in Paris, which is a, a chapter of his life we're going to discuss probably in the next episode. You get to speak French. Oh, ooh la la. Ooh la la. But he was very worried that he might not make the crossing from Dublin to France in one piece. And so Joyce asked his brother Stanislaus to ensure, in the event of James Joyce's untimely death, that he would send Joyce's writings uh, to all the greatest libraries in the world, including the Vatican. Uh, he was probably around 20 mm -hmm. when he did this. Mm -hmm. uh, he hadn't written any of the stuff you'd know him for. Yeah. In fact, a lot of the stuff he'd written at that point he later burned. So... Uh, yeah, this, this grandiosity that Stephen's showing here, there's probably some truth to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we're going to get to the long-winded section of our podcast. Can you read the next sure, line here? Sure. Someone must have read them there after a few thousand years, a Mahaman Vantara. We talked about esotericism as one of our guiding or directive themes. Another directive theme and the art of this episode is... Esotericism? Philology, okay. aka linguistics. So, Mahamanvantra is a Sanskrit word. In order to understand what it means, we should discuss these two concepts, Manvantra and Pralaya. So, these are concepts that originate in Brahmanism, which is kind of the precursor to Hinduism, and by extension, Buddhism, which was born out of Hinduism. You with me so far? Yeah. Manvantra and pralaya are these periods of activity and repose, respectively. So, manvantra is the active period, pralaya is the non-active period. In terms of these various Eastern uh, philosophies or religions we've mentioned, this one way to interpret this is the cycle of reincarnation, of death and rebirth. Mm -hmm. um, so, manvantra would be the period we're experiencing right now when you're alive in the world. And pralaya is the period between death and rebirth where you're somewhere else. Um, maybe you're in the bardo if you're right. Tibetan or what have you. It could describe, you know, shorter cycles within a day or, you know, it's, it's not really a, a well-defined period of time. But it's these two parts of a cycle in opposition to one another. So far so good? Yep. Okay. So... Um, Stephen sees this kind of endless cycle of, of flow and retreat acted out by the tide, ebb and flow in and out. That could be considered manvantra and pralaya, active water coming in and then receding further out. Mm -hmm. And the tide, so we talked a lot about the Gilbert schema. Guess what? There was more than one schema for Ulysses. The other is uh, one he gave to his friend Carlo Lenati. It's called the Lenati schema. And in that, he mentioned the tide as an important symbol in Proteus. So you keep that tide in mind. And the tide is often connected to reincarnation or um, cyclical change. Tide goes in, tide goes out, never miscommunication. 
the flow and change represented here by Manvantra and Pralaya fits pretty snugly into the protean theme of Ulysses' third episode, mm. wouldn't you say? So, how long is a Manvantra? Uh, like I said, it's not a fixed period of time. It's a relative period. So the length of a Manvantra is relative to whatever is happening during that time. Right? So think about one's life. If your living phase is the Manvantra, there isn't a fixed period for that. Some people die when they're infants. Some people die in their youth or middle age. Some people live over 100 years. There's not a fixed time. And it can take place within a given system. When you start looking at some of the larger cycles in the universe or shorter cycles, it, it can vary a lot, even more than just human lives. Mm -hmm. A Maha So Maha is a prefix. You might have heard it in words like Mahatma. Mahabharata. Mm -hmm. uh, or Mahayana. Mm -hmm. So there's two big schools of Buddhism, Theravada and Mahayana. Mm -hmm. And Mahayana is the big vehicle. So that, that's the type of Buddhism where you're not just staying in a monastery, you're going out, maybe even delaying your own enlightenment to bring more people into knowledge of Buddhism. That's why it's a, a, the big vehicle, Mahayana. So a, Mahama, a Mahamanvantra, I did Google the phrase, how long is a Mahamanvantra? Mm -hmm. uh, there is, you can find as tedious cal of calculations as you like, but basically it can be measured in thousands or trillions of years. It's about a bajillion years long, I would say, uh, speaking scientifically. Mm. Um, Stuart Gilbert, in his 1930 book, Ulysses, A Guide, described it as the period in which nations and civilizations are born, die, reappear, and disappear. So it's a big freaking chunk of time. Stephen measures the Mahamanvantra here. It will take people to notice his letter books in just a few millennia, so maybe his readers are getting off easy, or maybe he is getting off easy if it's... If, if it's Rather than a trillion years, it's only a thousand years. Kind of puts that into perspective. Joyce liked to use this word from time to time in his writing, and he basically just used it to mean a really, really, really long chunk of time. But that's okay, because like I said, it's relative. Um, if you'll allow me a short detour, in 1905, um, young and pissed off and disaffected James Joyce wrote a poem called The Holy Office, in which he accused, basically accused the literary establishment of Dublin. We're talking about people like William Butler Yeats, uh, Lady Philippa Gregory, etc. All you know, the the people he didn't like. He's basically accusing them of being a bunch of hacks, but like in a really intense, like twenty three year old writing an angry poem kind of way. Like I said, he uses this term in this poem called "The Holy Office," and I would like you to read the stanza in which it appears. Go for it. Though they may labor to the grave, my spirit shall they never have, nor make my soul with theirs as one, till the Mahamvantra be done. And though they spurn me from their door, my soul shall spurn them ever. <laughs> so dramatic. Yeah, so he, I guess, couldn't get this published and paid with money he didn't have to publish it himself and then pass it out. And it was like a hot potato. No one wanted to touch it because mm -hmm. he, he uh, names names. So... Um, we did write a post about this long, long ago called James Joyce's Poetic Rage. We'll link that in our episode notes as well as a uh, link to the poem The Holy Office because you should read it uh, to get inside of James Joyce's head when he was quite young. 
So where did Joyce learn this term? Um, he wasn't really known as a Buddhist or a Hindu. And the answer to that is through Western mysticism, specifically theosophy. What's the important question? What is theosophy? Well, thanks for asking, Dermot. <laughs> <laughs> so theosophy has had several definitions over time. It used to be the term for theology. So if we think back to, remember Jakob Bohm, mm -hmm. our um, German Christian mystic, he was known as a theosophist, but it's just because the term theologian wasn't used at that time. In the 19th century, and this is a theosophy that Stephen slash James Joyce would have been familiar with. It was a spiritualist system created and promoted by Madame Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. She was a Russian immigrant uh, who was living in New York. And she made a big stew of Brahmanism, Hinduism, Christian mysticism, Kabbalah, supernatural phenomenon like channeling spirits, psychic abilities. She mixed it all up and came up with a system called Theosophy. A lot of people see it as kind of the precursor to modern like New Age spiritual spirituality mm -hmm. um, or interest in kind of if you know someone who's really into like crystals or astrology or that sort of thing, this is kind of the forerunner to that. Um, there was a big spiritual boom in the late 19th century and this was one of the bigger players. It also kicks off in the mid 19th with rapping. As in uh, table rapping. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes. Like in yeah. our episode about begrudgery, we had a table rapping ghost. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, go listen to that one if you want to hear a noisy spirit. Another thing they did, and this is, again, total detour, um, but they were the first to, um, well, not the first, but ever, but in um, modern Western society to cremate um, a person who had died, one of their... Uh, bigwigs was a man named um, Colonel Henry Olcott. He was a Civil War colonel, and he got into theosophy and was was a big deal in that circle. And he really believed in cremation as a proper method of um, treating mm -hmm. human remains. And he performed a cremation when I believe it was still illegal. That story is super interesting and wild. And I have a, a great article from, I think, theosophy.org um, that you can read about that. Back to James Joyce. He, we've talked a lot about him and Stephen as atheists. But um, when Joyce gave up Catholicism, which he was very devout, uh, he kind of had this spiritual hole he needed to fill. Mm -hmm. And he briefly filled it with um, sort of occult spiritualism and theosophy. It didn't last very long. You know, I think it, it didn't really work for him as a system. But we know that he owned and read books by Blavatsky. He owned a, her one of her best-known works, Isis Unveiled, and by Colonel Henry Olcott. Uh, his Buddhist catechism uh, was also on Joyce's shelf. He was very influenced by folks in his social circle, like William Butler Yeats, who was a member of the Golden Dawn, and A.E. Russell, who is a character in Ulysses and was head of the Dublin Theosophical Society until he got mad and quit. And he's also the founder of the Dublin Hermetic Society, the offices of which Joyce and Oliver St. John Gogarty would occasionally vandalize because they were kind of dicks. Joyce, like I said, quickly became disillusioned. And according to Stanislaus in his uh, biography of his brother called My Brother's Keeper, 
James Joyce made up a bunch of rude, rude nicknames for these prominent theosophists. So Madame Blavatsky became Madame Blue Fatsky, and Colonel Henry Olcott became Colonel Henry Oldcod. Uh, Joyce was talented in other ways. Yes. Theosophy and its cousin that we'll talk about in a minute, Hermeticism, does make a lot of appearances in Ulysses. Uh, so we'll return to this as a topic. It's kind of why I'm talking about it so much to define this one term and its origin. And it often does not appear flatteringly. So this is just a little primer here on theosophy. So you kind of get where Joyce's mind was and kind of the, the deeper meanings behind the single word in one paragraph that might seem really out of place. Like it, it is just kind of thrown in there. Yeah. Like someone with a, a fancy thesaurus thrown open. Yeah. We also want to highlight here the, the occult symbolism of this because the next fragment here he tosses at us, Pico della Mirandola-like or Mirandola-like. This one's for you, Dermot, because this is, I'd say, a, an interest of yours. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand it over to you. Yeah, it's an interest of mine because I've been spending a lot of time working on a project that deals with the history of science and religion mm -hmm. and mysticism and how they intertwine. And the primary source I would cite would be... Uh, Francis Yates' book, Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition, I know we've mentioned that before, written in 1964, and it deals with the, the, some of the currents that ran through Renaissance Europe in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. And so one of these, you've got sci what we call you know, Cartesian science appears. We have established religion, and we have a third strand, which is Hermeticism, and that's where Pico comes in. Okay, um, so who was Pico? Uh, if you want to read more about him right up top before Dermot gives us a little bio for Pico, um, he's not just something you put on your tacos. <laughs> um, but I would recommend visiting the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. The article on him is is written in a way that's really easy to digest and understand if you're kind of new to this field of Renaissance mysticism and magic. Um, so give us a little bio on Pico. Well, I would go, before I would do that, I would say before I read this material, you think you understand the Renaissance, you think you have this idea about what the Renaissance was. And unless you've, you've read books like this one by Francis Yates or other histories of the Renaissance, you really don't. You have a cartoon. And so... Basically what happens is there's a man called Ficino. Ficino was hired by one of the Medicis to translate these supposedly ancient, indescribably ancient magical books uh, from Egypt called the, the Hermetic books. The, so Hermetic, the Corpus Hermeticum, Corpus Hermeticum I've used yes, on the blog yes. before. And they were believed to be older than Plato. They were inconceivably old. And they were full of these magical spells and correspondences. So Ficino, who is a little bit older than Pico, he first translates them and he tries to Christianize them and make them compatible with Christianity so he wouldn't get denounced by the Inquisition. And then Pico comes along and he bolts onto this. He, he finds you know more texts and more texts and basically Pico um, goes so far beyond Ficino and he brings in Kabbalah, the Hebrew magical system. And the the, the Kabbalah and the Pico's form of magic wasn't just a, a form of natural magic. It was 
full-on angelic magic. This was magic that was meant to communicate directly with the angels and with God himself. And, of course, this was really dangerous territory in Renaissance Europe at this time. But this, this current of hermeticism and hermetic magic just took over. It, it became incredibly popular. And it was the dominant, one of the dominant intellectual currents in Europe from the late 15th to the early 17th centuries. Uh, before finally a, a philologist, getting to philology now, mm -hmm. called Kausabon, went over these supposedly ancient texts and went, hang on a minute, this thing dates from the 3rd century AD, maybe the 4th. There's no way this thing could have been written before Plato or around the time of Moses. And at that, point, at that time, you, you, it begins to fade out and goes underground, becomes secret societies like the Rosicrucians, the Illuminati, um, maybe Freemasonry. It's very hard to tell because they're secret societies, so they don't publish a lot of pamphlets. Um, so this, this figure, Pico, he's described by Francis Yates as one of the most important figures in the history of the West because of the influence that Hermeticism had on a lot of currents and the way it wove out in out of religion and into what we call science and back again it's it's mind-boggling to try to, to follow these threads it's not this binary thing of science versus religion you've got these three twines and they're they're moving in and out of each other through history and so ideas that are magical in one time are scientific in the next and they're religious in another and it, it would do your head in so People like Richard Dawkins say who have this like binary science good, religion bad idea of the history of thought are, are peddling a cartoon that doesn't even show all three currents and how they, they move and how some of the greatest scientific thinkers were, were magical or religious or both or all three at the same time from our point of view. So that's who Pico was. It's a very he was a hermeticist? Hermeticist, yes. And yes. He was also into Kabbalah. Kabbalah, well. yeah. Okay. So again, unlike Ficino, like he really went much further, and mm -hmm. he had friends who were Jewish, and who taught him the Hebrew language, mm -hmm. or the at least the alphabet, because so much of Kabbalah is about the word. In the beginning was the word, mm -hmm. and so the Hebrew alphabet, being the language spoken by God Himself, was believed mm -hmm. to have special magical properties, over and above, say, Greek. And so the, he would have been working before, like John Dee and Edward Kelly, and. Um, they were fifteen hundreds. They were all around the same time. Okay. I'm not. I think the because that's they, those guys were trying to transcribe the language of angels too, right? Yes. Yeah. I think Dee and Kelly might. I, I don't want to make this because I don't have the timeline in my head. But I think they might have been a bit later. I think mm -hmm. he might have been anticipated them by a little bit. They were around the time of Elizabeth. So yeah. 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 All these guys are churning around the same time, like Bruno's floating mm -hmm. around in here too. Something in the water in those days, huh? Well, that's that's the the effect that this one book had when the Corpus Hermeticum hit Europe. It was just like fireworks. Mm -hmm. You can now read it online for free. Mm -hmm. I've linked it in several of our blog posts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you're mentioning Kabbalah. We've already discussed some Kabbalistic imagery in our episode called Gaze in Your Omphalos. And this is not... The last time that Hermeticist is mentioned, um, A.E. Russell is mentioned by name and his Piminder, which is one of the Corpus Hermeticum books, gets another shout out mm -hmm. in this chapter. Russell is also mentioned in Nestor as someone that Stephen owes money to. Um, so this is not in insignificant. Um, you mentioned before when you were describing your uh, illustration, the phrase, as above, so below. Yeah. Can you explain that? Yeah, the idea being that um, there was a... Actually, what I would like to do is read a quote. 
Okay, and this is from the Francis Yates book. Mm -hmm. So rather than me give a, a definition, I'll read the definition given by Francis Yates. This is on okay. page 60 of her book, uh, Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition. The type of magic which we are to be concerned with, and this is the magic of Ficino, uh, differs profoundly from astrology, which is not necessarily a magic at all, but a mathematical science based on the belief that human destiny is irrevocably governed by the stars, and that therefore, from the study of a person's horoscope, the position of the stars at, at the time of his birth, one can foretell his irrevocably for, foreordained future. So that's not what, what hermetic magic is. Mm -hmm. This is different. So the hermetic magic, back in their quote is, is astrological only in the sense that it too bases itself upon the stars, their images and influences. But it is a way of escaping from astrological determinism by gaining power over the stars, guiding their influences in the direction which the oper operator desires. Or in the religious sense, it is a way of salvation, of escape from material fortune and destiny, or of obtaining insight into the divine. Hence, astrological magic is not a correct description of it, and hereafter, for want of a better term, I shall call it astral magic. So mm -hmm. that's Francis Yates' definition of what Ficino and mm -hmm. later Pico saw as these hermetic system as above, so below, that there was a connection between down here and up there, mm -hmm. that there was a, this vast web of cosmic correspondences from the constellations down mm -hmm. to days of the week to the types of metals to flowers, mm -hmm. that these certain things were connected to other things like sympathetic magic, like unto like. Mm -hmm. And one thing you'll find throughout Ulysses, especially if you're familiar with that Gilbert schema, which you can find in this book that we referenced earlier, is that there are many, many correspondences in Ulysses of Joyce's own creation. So each episode contains corresponding organs, colors, symbols, arts, um, rhetorical technique, things like this. And at first glass, glance, these seem kind of random. Like, I know when I first started reading, I was like, I don't need to know why this chapter is attached to the esophagus. That seems kind mm -hmm. of silly. Um, but the more I read about it, I've really become convinced that they are actually a quite um, necessary... Um, system of symbolism to understand Ulysses beyond a, a surface layer because Joyce um, was very interested in these correspondences and um, one paper I read said that using these, and some of them are kind of fun like uh, there's one episode called Aeolus, which Aeolus is a god of the winds and it's a chapter about a bunch of you know, kind of journalist blowhards hanging out in the offices of the Freeman's Journal so not only are they corresponded to the God of Winds, which is a story in the Odyssey about, I believe, um, Odysseus's men literally stealing a bag of wind from the God of Wind, and there are a bunch of wind bags, and the corresponding organ is lungs. Right. The chapter where Bloom eats lunch, uh, the Lestragonians, the corresponding organ is esophagus. Mm. The Sirens, which is a very musical chapter, there's a lot of music in it, it's written in, in a style that's very musical. The corresponding organ is ears. Mm. And Calypso, which we're writing about now, corresponding organ is kidney. Mm. It's just, it's kind of nice. Um, it's kind of cool. And the more you de delve into the symbolism of, of what some of these colors or other symbols mean, you really do get this more complex system 
of symbolism. And they also allow Joyce to portray Dublin not only as a city, but as a body where its people and places are correspondent to the functions of these organs. So for Dublin to function as a body politic, it requires all these different body parts that are, are symbolized. It's a really cool way of looking at it, I think. Um, comes from a, a paper called James Joyce and Hermeticism by Joyce scholar William York Tyndall. And he also points out in this paper that um, Joyce couldn't really believe in the maxim as above, so below, because he didn't believe in as above. He didn't really believe in higher realms or God. He, he kind of casts all that out. So his version of this is as here, so there. Um, so one earthly thing corresponds to another earthly thing, mm -hmm. right? Whereas in the, the uh, magical system, things from, you know, if you think about the Renaissance worldview, right? We live in the, the sublunar plane, everything mm -hmm. below the, the moon, right? So the stuff that's important is literally physically higher up in these higher spheres, right. that that stuff as above is corresponding with our kind of mundane things so below. Mm -hmm. But Joyce didn't have the as above because he didn't believe in God or anything. Right. So he corresponds um, mundane things to other mundane things. So it's a sideways correspondence rather than a vertical correspondence. So he's, he's taken this hermetic mm -hmm. correspondence yeah. system and flattened it and naturalized it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... In Ulysses, Theosophy definitely takes some cues from Hermeticism. Mm -hmm. um, there's an overlapping Venn diagram there, but they are distinct systems and ways of seeing the world. Mm -hmm. um, Theosophy is relatively modern. Hermeticism has a couple millennia under its belt um, or close enough. But I think Joyce thought it was all, all kind of BS, and he kind of mocks and often conflates the two. So there's a quote from page 188 where he, he, he says... Yogi bogey box in Dawson chambers, Isis unveiled. The faithful hermeticists await the light, ripe for cellaship, ring round about him. So this is kind of parodying uh, George A.E. Russell, who his uh, hermetic society's offices were in Dawson Street, hmm. near the current Hodges Figgis. And when we were at the National Library last year, they had an exhibit on about Yeats, mm -hmm. and they had a Yogi Bogey box. Yeah, Not yeah. what Yeats called it, but yeah. they had the box, and I got very excited that yeah. it was there. We so have the pictures to prove it. Mm -hmm. So um, you'll see, like, once you, you kind of have this highlighted for you, you'll start seeing it a lot more in um, Ulysses, particularly references to the god Toth, or Thoth, um, who is the Egyptian god of writers and libraries. He's... Um, so if you're into Hermeticism, there the Egyptian god Thoth um, corresponds to the Greek god Mercury, and Hermeticism was founded by this sort of semi-mythical figure called Hermes Trismegistus, who was like a man version of a mix of Thoth and Hermes. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll see Thoth pop up a lot, or like an Isis or an ibis-headed god, which Thoth was. So um, keep an eye out for that, and you'll see that in pretty much all of Joyce's major works except Dubliners. But he's in Portrait, he's in Ulysses, and I'm fairly certain he's in Finnegan's Wake. Um, Joyce was also influenced heavily by symbolist poets like, uh, pardon my French. Arthur Rambaud and Stéphane Mallarmé, uh, who both wrote extensively about the connection between poetry and magic. And I think Mallarmé in particular wrote an essay um, about how um, 
poetry is a, a necessary component in producing magic. Mm -hmm. So um, back to Pico. Why does Joyce mention Pico here? Um, I think beyond his, his sort of dabbling interest in occultism, uh, Pico was a man who rose in prominence very quickly. He was sort of a, a prodigy religiously um, and academically, scholarly, but he a little too quickly got into writing treatises for the Pope about how uh, they needed to learn the Kabbalah and practice magic so they could speak to angels. Uh, Pope less excited about that, and Pico sort of mysteriously died around his mid-30s. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, yeah. you can make that what you conspiracy theory. I, yeah, um, I do have a conspiracy <laughs> theory about that. They were sick of this guy. Well, they were also yeah. afraid that people might think, well, if, if these Magus guys can use Kabbalah for all these amazing things, it's only a matter of time before the idea occurs to people that Jesus wasn't the son of God. He was just a Kabbalistic Magus. And mm -hmm. there goes our religion. And, you know, before that thing settles, there could be a lot of dead people lying around the place. So you might want to be yeah. careful. So, but yeah, people also died young back then. too. Yeah. And he kind of like lingered on in the hagiography that some of his family wrote on mm. him. Do you know why Pico, like interest in Pico spiked in the late 19th century? Um, I would think but part of the her general hermetic revival then, like Golden Dawn and that kind of stuff, maybe. It's yeah. a good guess. But actually one of his... Um, treatises he wrote for the Pope on why we should use magic to speak to angels. Yeah. Um, the like preamble or the introduction to that, whatever you'd want to call that, um, wasn't talking about Kabbalah so much and it was talking about some other philosophical ideas that were kind of in vogue in the late 19th century. And I think it was even seen as like an atheistic or like a more materialist text. Mm -hmm. And so just that little keyhole of it got really popular uh, okay. and people read it a lot. And so they thought, oh man, this guy is like speaking to the Pope about the importance of science and stuff like right. this. But it was actually the, the preamble to a treatise on why we should use magic to speak to right, angels. Right, but right. that part of it got big. So I think that's how Joyce knew about Pico della Mirandola, right. um, and, but he's also someone who peaked very early. Mm -hmm. he's, he was a, a genius in his day, but was largely forgotten by history after his early death. And I think that um, Stephen is worried that the name Daedalus might wind up similarly obscure. Like right. he hasn't left, he's so young and he hasn't really, he, he's sort of this, this boy genius who hasn't really left a legacy yet. See, this is a question that I would have and I'm sure scholars can be picking over this for a century to come. Sure. The extent to which Joyce, see, there are Bruno as well. We have these 19th century cartoons of Bruno. There was mm -hmm. a book written about Bruno in like 1860 or 1870 that made him sound like a, a martyr to science. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the book I'm holding in my hand right now came along in 64 that that was dynamited. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that is nonsense. And and I remember you telling me there's an episode of the reboot of Cosmos yeah. with Neil deGrasse Tyson yeah. where he's he's shown as like a scientific martyr as well, right, but he was right. like crazy magic dude. Frances Yates writes, and it's very sad, she writes mm -hmm. in the end of this book, if I have not convinced people that Bruno was not a scientist, but rather a magician, I have written this book in vain. Well, when it comes to Mr. deGrasse Tyson, she certainly wrote this book in vain because he's never bothered to crack it open. It's one of the most important books in the history of 20th century history about this, the, 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 not the conflict, but the dynamic between science, mm -hmm. magic, and religion. And for a whole generation of people, it might as well have never been written. I, I will make sure to put the Goodreads link in, in the notes so you can find it but, if you want to read it. In terms of like these, these, I'm interested in the thing about Pico because the same thing was done with Bruno. 
people would take these little bits mm-hmm. out of Bruno where he would sound like a free thinking. And, and she, she says in this, passages like this make 19th century liberals swoon. Mm-hmm. But then you read the paragraphs before and after where he's talking about invoking the gods of ancient Egypt and returning mm-hmm. a pure solar religion to the people of the earth and all this mm-hmm. stuff that's completely hermetic. Yeah, That gets cropped out. So it, look, it sounds like that may have happened with mm-hmm. Pico as well. But Joyce, if he, if he also knew of Pico via the, his contact with A.E. Mm-hmm. Russell, who certainly would have known about Pico, mm-hmm. then he might have had a more, uh, and Bruno too, he might have had a, a more open understanding of these people and, uh, and mm-hmm. less of that 19th century Whig idea yeah. of these like secular rationalist right. caricatures which and never existed. I think too like there are many famous geniuses who died in their 30s and are not well remembered Yeah, who were famous in their day. Like there are other people who fit that pattern Right. Um, and he chose this fairly obscure one right. um, and kind of bookended it with this other you know word that I'm pretty sure came to him from another um, esoteric tradition. Right. Right. So, so the, given the context mm-hmm. of it, it suggests to me that yeah. he knew about Pico's role yeah. in Kabbalah and Hermeticism. I'm a little unsure in the, the greater context of this passage why he would choose there to put an yeah. esoteric yeah. Um, clue. But yeah. it's, it's, that's certainly, I think, what's, what's driving it. Yeah, he's mentioning Blavatsky, Isis Unveiled and all the yeah. rest of it. And, I think um, he was there. There were lots of aspects of theosophy he dropped pretty hard, but the two that he really carried with him were reincarnation and the cyclical view of history. Right. So I think these probably the tie would be um, the idea of reincarnation, protean change, and exemplified in the tide, mm-hmm. and then in these kind of um, yeah. magical symbols here. And- Basically, if you have a cyclical view of history, you've, you've already taken a very big step towards a hermetic view of mm-hmm. things. Which we know he did through Vico, mm-hmm. through John Battista Vico, mm-hmm. which we talked about in our Nestor episode. All right. Want to talk about Hamlet? Oh, okay. All right. So right <laughs> after he says Pico della Mirandola-like, he says, I very like a whale. So this is a line from Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 2. Uh, Hamlet and Polonius don't like each other, but there's a scene where they're watching a most protean cloud with a small p, um, which Hamlet comments looks like a camel, and then he kind of says maybe more like a weasel because he doesn't he thinks Polonius is up to no good. Mm. Um, but Polonius just kind of keeps agreeing with him, and then finally ha- Hamlet says, "I think it looks like a whale," and Polonius agrees, ending with, "I very like a whale." So I think this is, again, just a little nod to the idea of protean change. It's not a very famous exchange in, mm-hmm. in terms of Hamlet, but Stephen sees himself as a Hamlet figure. He later talks about wearing his Hamlet hat and his uh, sandal shoon and his staff and, you know, things that are also direct quotes from uh, Hamlet. He refers to, well, he and Haynes have an exchange in Telemachus where they, they talk about uh, the Martello Tower is looking like Elsinore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that there are strains of Hamlet throughout. All right. There's a whole sha- uh, chapter about Shakespeare coming up. Oh, good. Dermot doesn't like Shakespeare. I don't like Shakespeare. Yeah. All right. Uh, one little last bit about Pico. Um, this last line here. You want to read that again? Sure. And yet to read a page. Wait, of what... wait. Oh. Uh, bullet point or number eight. When one reads these strange pages of one long gone, 
one feels that one is at one with one who wants. So what does that mean? I have no idea. It's because it's gibberish. So this is uh, written in the style of, Joyce likes to do these little pastiches. It's written in the style of an 1873 essay entitled Pico della Mirandola by a man named Walter Pater. Um, and a quote that you can read in Don Gifford's Ulysses Annotated goes as such. And yet to read a page of one of Pico's forgotten books is like a glance into one of those ancient sepulchres upon which a wanderer in classical lands has sometimes stumbled. Yeah, so he's kind of parodying that. Okay. Um, he, he finds it a little... pompous tone. Yeah, a little stuffy. Yeah. A little, little bit like ascot wearing. Yeah, he's, the, the writer has a monocle on. Yes, absolutely. And if you shock him, it will fall into a glass of champagne. Yes, yes. Yeah. So he's just... so it's all, But it is a, a link then to an essay about Pico della Mirandola, okay. so... Um, which presumably Joyce read because he's uh, parodying it. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing he's not parodying it just for the hell. Have we access to that entire essay? Um, I've never looked it up. I should try to get mm -hmm. it. We'll look it up and see if we can find a link. Clearly he read it. Yeah. Yeah, it'll give you some insight into what he knew about Pico. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. So I will look that up um, and try to post it in the episode notes if I can find a PDF. Good, good. All right. Any closing thoughts? Um, just that I would say, like, I, I can't recommend, uh, pr like, a, a, even just a basic reading about her the history of hermeticism. It sounds like gibberish, and, you know, to you it is, but um, to a lot of people for a great amount of time it wasn't. And uh, it's just a fascinating story, and some of the ideas from it have bled into what we call science. And it was, like I said, you have to look at the history of thought as three, three strands, mm -hmm. occultism, received religion mm -hmm. and um, and what we call science what what, mm -hmm. what would it be called natural philosophy back in the day and th th these things rub against each other and share mm -hmm. shared elements and then they become harmonious and then enemies yeah it's a very different way of looking at the Renaissance than what we learned in school I think most of us yeah the, the story yeah. we were told at school was really uh, a bastardization of what actually happened. Yeah. So if you got thoughts on this, shoot us an email. Um, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. Um, there's a little outro here where you can find all the places you can reach us. Uh, if you write us something interesting, we'll read it on the podcast. Um, yeah. All right, guys. Keep, keep it real for another two weeks. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Please visit our website at bloomsandbarnacles.com to read our blog, which is updated weekly on Mondays with a new blog post and artwork about James Joyce's novel Ulysses. And you'll find a new podcast there as well fortnightly. We are on Facebook. You can search for our Facebook group, Blooms and Barnacles podcast on Facebook. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow us at BarnacleCast. You can find our podcast pretty much any place you find podcasts. That includes iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Go ahead and subscribe, and you won't have to remember which week we're dropping the podcast. Also, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes, as that helps our rankings and helps people find the podcast. And if you leave a positive review, we'll read it on the podcast. Finally, if you want to get in touch with us, the best way to do that is through email. You can email us at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. Please send questions and comments, and 
We'll read them on the show if we get any good ones. Until then, have a great two weeks, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.